one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon, seven, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. Here at Sports Podcast, it is Monday, November 20th, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great weekend, another awesome weekend of college football. And when I say we got a jam-packed Monday episode of the Air Tours Pod, we are loaded to the gills. Here's what you need to know about today's show. We are going to open. The college football playoff chaos scenario. All these good teams keep winning. Georgia, Alabama, Washington, Oregon, Texas, Florida State. And the question becomes, what would happen if everybody wins out? What happens then? There's one team that I think could potentially get screwed. I will explain that. Uh, From there, we will take a quick break. We will talk about the debacle with USC. They get destroyed by UCLA. Lincoln Riley, seven and five in year two and USC. They got a lot of questions and I bluntly don't know what the answers are. We'll follow that with a detailed coaching carousel update. Uh, Texas A&M, I got some very interesting stuff on that from over the weekend. Also worth noting, by the way, Arkansas retaining Sam Pittman. There's a lot of conversation about that. I'm a little surprised to be blunt. Uh, Syracuse makes a move. So we'll do a coaching carousel update and we will wrap. College Hoops Feast Week this weekend, the fun, all those conference, all those tournaments, Maui Battle for Atlantis. We will preview them all. I will make my picks. We got ourselves a jam-packed show. With So with that said, let's not waste any more time, and let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, so it's interesting, right? Um, You know, uh, topic of the day, so we talk on this show. I've kind of coined a term on these crazy Saturday college footballs into Monday. Saturday college football Saturdays into Monday. And about two or three times a year, we have what I like to call almost upset Saturday, where these really good teams in the top five, in the top 10, get pushed to the wire. And we almost get a bunch of upsets, but we don't quite. And it results in the the, the board, the, 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 the playoff scenarios, all of that essentially staying the same. And so I bring it up because we do almost upset Saturday about once or twice a year in college football. But then we usually get those one to two Saturdays where insanity happens and you get the upsets that you never saw coming. I bring it up today because basically every single week in college football has been almost upset Saturday, including this past Saturday. Washington gets pushed to the wire. Texas, it's a back and forth game, but they hold on to win. And we are now looking at a college football playoff chaos scenario, which many of you have asked me about. What happens, because it is possible, if all five conference champions end up with zero or one loss? This has not happened since the first year of the college football playoff. If you remember, we actually got six one-loss champions because the Big 12 didn't have a conference championship game. So both those Big 12 teams got eliminated. We got the, the, the first four in 2014, but we haven't had a year since then where all of the conference champions finished with zero or one losses. It's looking increasingly likely, we only got two weekends left, that we could get exactly that this year. Georgia and Alabama are going to play in the SEC championship game. If Georgia beats Georgia Tech and uh, uh, you know Alabama beats Auburn, the winner of that game is going to finish with zero or one losses. Big 10, Michigan-Ohio State play this weekend. You assume they'll beat whoever comes out of the West, and we have a undefeated Big 10 champion. The Big 12, Texas just keeps finding ways to win. If they finish 12 and 1, they'll be a 12 and 1 Big 12 champ. Uh, in the, uh, wh- who else am I missing? The Pac 12, obviously Washington and Oregon. Washington clinched a spot in the Pac 12 championship game. Oregon would by beating Oregon State this weekend. Those two teams play. It's going to be either a zero or one loss team at the end. And then there's the ACC, where Florida State uh, is undefeated. Louisville has one loss. And I will say, if we get to the scenario where all these conferences have a zero or one loss conference champ, I'll be blunt. The team that, in my opinion, is looking like it is going to get screwed more than anybody else is the ACC champion and very likely Florida State. 
I don't want to say it. I don't want to root for it. Florida State fans are going to get pictures and videos of this and say that I hate their team. No, no, no. I picked Florida State to win the ACC in the preseason. I picked them to make the college football playoff in the preseason. But I do think we have to call a spade a spade. And I do think Florida State is in bad shape. And it's interesting, right? Because I'll I'll tell you why it's interesting is because so to be clear, I, I don't watch college game day. It's not a knock. I just don't do it. I watch 14 hours of college football every day. I don't need two hours of pregame as well. But apparently on the college game, uh, on college game day on Saturday, there was a big segment about could an undefeated Florida State team get screwed out of a college football playoff spot? Um, and, uh, you know, I thought it was kind of stupid. I didn't see it. I heard about it. I saw Florida State fans getting mad. And I still believe, to be clear, if Florida State goes undefeated, I I do think they're going to make the college football playoff. But why I bring it up is because on Saturday, maybe the single most important piece of news, as I said, Washington wins, Texas wins, Georgia rolls, uh, whoever, you know, Oregon rolls, et cetera. Alabama did play Chattanooga, whatever. I bring it up because there was one piece of news. While Florida State did go ahead and beat North Alabama, The big piece of news was obviously that Jordan Travis, their star quarterback, went down with a nasty, nasty, nasty ankle injury. And so I bring it up because I don't think there's been any official report, but it seems almost certain that he's out for the year. And I do think it opens the scenario where if we get the chaos scenario, all undefeated or one loss conference champions, that Florida State could be left out. I bring it up. Because of a couple different reasons. One, you know, we're just going to have five for four spots. Like, that's the most important part. Two, obviously, there's the scenario if you lose to Louisville in the ACC championship game, then you're not a conference champion. Then Louisville, unless they lose to Kentucky this weekend, they would have a better argument for the for the uh, com- for the uh, playoff because they'd be the ACC champ. But if you lose to Florida this weekend, somehow, some way, Florida State closes at Florida, Louisville in the ACC championship game. If you lose to Florida this weekend then I do think it sets up the scenario where if everything plays out the way that we expect, then you could be the one on the outside looking in. The reasons why are pretty straightforward, okay? So I think sometimes this gets lost in the conversation about the college football playoff, the current existing four-team playoff. Um, What gets lost is this, is we spent all year breaking down resumes and analyzing out of conference and conference champion and strength the schedule and this and that. The committee, the number one thing, the number one thing that they are tasked with when they choose those four teams, who are the four best teams in college football? Now, to a degree, that will change next year because we get six automatic bids to the college football playoffs right now. Maybe it'll turn out to be five with no more Pac-12, but we're going to have automatic bids. So it isn't always necessarily going to be the top 12 teams, but I bring it up because this year, doesn't matter if you win the conference or not, if you're undefeated or not, if you have a tough strength to schedule or not, the committee's only job is to pick the four best teams. And if Florida State loses this weekend to Florida, I think it's going to be hard to argue that if everybody else takes care of business, that Florida State is one of the best teams. One, and this is like an old school NCAA basketball tournament thing, the team that they largely built their resume with wouldn't be the team that would be going to the playoff, right? This is the old Kenyon Martin thing. If you remember Kenyon Martin, 2000, Cincinnati. Cincinnati was the best team in college basketball that year. Kenyon Martin gets hurt in the conference tournament, the Conference USA tournament. I believe it was the Pyramid in Memphis. He goes down with an injury. They were clearly the best team in the country that year. They had the best resume going into Selection Sunday. And they ended up getting a two seed because the committee said, we have to judge you based on who you are right now, not who you were when you built this resume. So Florida State, even if they finish with one loss, it's going to be hard to argue that they're one of the four best teams without Jordan Travis. Beyond that, again, first of all, you got to factor in if they lose to Louisville, Louisville will actually have a better resume than them. They're going to be a different team without Jordan Travis. The resume just really isn't there. And you feel bad, right? They scheduled an out-of-conference game with LSU, but LSU is probably going to finish the regular season 9-3. and three. LSU, in a, th- a situation where Alabama wins the SEC championship game, LSU would be Alabama's third best win. Beat Ole Miss, would have beaten Georgia at that point, 
And obviously they, uh, you know, they, they beat LSU as the third best win on their schedule. Ohio State and Michigan, one of them is going to have a win over the other to hang their hat on. Texas is going to have a win over at Alabama to hang their hat on. So you go on and on down the list. Those two Pac-12 teams, obviously it goes without saying. And so I just bring it up because the resume isn't there. It's going to be hard to argue they're one of the four best teams. And the other thing that I think is worth noting this year as well, this year there are going to be some very strong at-large candidates, and that's not always the case. But this year, think about the one-loss teams that we could be trending to see by the end of the year. Ohio State and Michigan. The loser of that game is still going to be awesome. I don't think they're going to have much of a resume, but a a full-strength Ohio State or a full-strength Michigan versus Florida State without Jordan Travis? It's a tough sell. Alabama, if they beat Georgia, you mean to tell me that Georgia, with what they've done the last three weeks, destroying Ole Miss, destroying Missouri, destroying Tennessee, is not a better team with a better resume than Florida State, even if Georgia is not your SEC champ? Even Washington. If Washington beats Washington State in the Apple Cup this weekend, but then loses to Oregon in the conference championship game, Washington's going to have a heck of a resume headlined by a win over Oregon earlier this year, a win over a top 20 Oregon State team. You go on and on down the list, a win, you know, whatever. I'm not going to go through their whole resume. So I bring it up because to be clear, I'm not rooting against Florida State. I picked them to make the college football playoff. For what it's worth, my top three in the preseason are still looking pretty good. My top three were Michigan, Alabama, and Florida State. Now, I did have Penn State in the college football playoff. That's another conversation for another day. But I bring it up because I want Florida State to win out. Makes me look smart. I get to brag. I get to tell you how smart I am. But if they were to lose, I think they're the team on the outside looking in. Now, the good news is, I'll say this. I don't think the playoff committee would leave out an undefeated Power 5 conference champion. I think it'd be a bad look. Um, And more importantly, like by that point, you'd have a win at Florida. Not great, but it's not terrible. Um, And you would have a win over Louisville which would obviously be at that point uh, an 11-1 team in the ACC championship game. So for Florida State, you got a lot of talking heads. You know, First of all, I'm not rooting against Florida State, so I just want to make sure I make that clear because I saw a lot of that in the lead-up to, to Saturday. But at the same time, if I'm Florida State, focus on winning, focus on taking care of business because you take care of business, you go 12-0, you go 13-0 with an ACC championship game, I think you'll be in good shape. But man, oh man, oh man, as I said, these almost upset Saturdays have not come. And increasingly, it is looking like we might get five, zero, or one loss conference champs. And if that's the case, I think Florida State could be on the outside looking in. All right, so what we're going to do, take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk a little bit about that debacle with the USC. Lincoln Riley, seven and five in year two. Caleb Williams out the door. That was his last regular season game. And I guess my big question is this, what is next for the Trojans and what's the fix? Because I don't know if there is one. Quick break. Be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears. And let me say this. The Florida State college football playoff conversation, like, like that's the biggest thing going on in college football right now. Certainly the biggest thing coming out of Saturday. But I would argue that the single most interesting narrative, the single most interesting conversation actually came out of a matchup of unranked teams. And I don't know if we've ever talked unranked team versus unranked team in mid-November this late in the year, but how can you not, based on what happened on Saturday afternoon at the cloudy, rainy Los Angeles Coliseum, just about about a 20, 25-minute drive down the road from where I live. And it was interesting, right? Because coming into this game, UCLA, the big story was around Chip Kelly. Now, I told you on Friday's show, I said, I did not believe that Chip Kelly's job was in as much danger as a lot of people made it out to be. But at the same time, that was the big conversation. UCLA is the underdog. What happens if they lose? What happens to Chip Kelly? All that good stuff. Well, bluntly, we didn't have to worry about that all that much because UCLA put the whooping on USC final score 38 to 20. And I don't know how many people realize this coming in, but I think everybody realizes it now. That was USC's last regular season game of the year. They played in week zero. They had their bye early. They've been playing every single week since October. 
and their regular season is done. They finish seven and five. The defense is a mess. The O-line is a mess. Caleb Williams is just a distant memory. Thanks for the memories, Caleb. And I'm here to say this. The Trojans are very clearly broken. And I think for the first time, there's real questions. Like, is Lincoln Riley actually the guy to actually fix it? Let's dive in. Let's break it down because this game was wild. And let me say this. Listen, I get all sorts of stuff wrong, so this isn't me patting myself on the back taking a victory lap. But when I saw the line was USC favored by six and a half, I said, like, what am I missing here? Because you can criticize UCLA for whatever you want. Chip Kelly, you know what? He's not, listen, he's not the most personable guy in the world. UCLA fans want more. But the bottom line is this. They won nine games last year, eight games the year before. And this year, they've been really solid across the board considering how much they lost. I know they were coming off a loss to Arizona State. I get that it was not pretty. But the defense has been great all year. The run game has been great all year. And they found an answer at quarterback and Ethan Garber still. He got hurt. Well, he was back. He was healthy. And you could see the difference in UCLA and the difference in talent between the team in blue and the team in Cardinal and gold. Okay. The final stats in this game were jarring. UCLA wins 38 to 20. But the bottom line is it gets much, much worse than even that would indicate. UCLA in the least surprising news ever. If you've watched any USC at all this year, USC gave up about five, five and a half yards per carry UCLA about 200 yards rushing on the game. Meanwhile, what did I just say about that offensive line, that offensive line for USC boy? Oh boy. Was it bad? How about this? 22 carries. Let me make sure I get this right. I'm just, I want to make sure I get this right. I just want to make sure that I get this right because this is so jarring. I don't even know if I believe what I saw. Final stat line, three yards rushing for USC on 22 carries. That comes out to 0.1 yards per carry over the course of this game. Now, I know UCLA's defense is really good, and I know those stats are kind of skewed because Caleb Williams took a couple uh, sacks and the sack numbers count against your rushing yards. But the bottom line is when you rush for three yards in any game, that simply isn't going to get the job done, especially when your head coach is supposedly an offensive genius. And so when I look at USC, they finished seven and five. I don't think there's any doubt. They're going to go down as the most disappointed team in college football this year. I mean, listen, Texas A&M, LSU, like I don't care who we're talking about. There is no one more disappointing than USC coming off 11 wins a year ago. With the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, they promised us that they fixed things on the defense. And instead, they were way worse. They finished seven and five. And bluntly, I just don't know if Lincoln Riley is the guy to answer this program's problems. Because when you look at this program's problems, a couple of things. One, they're really obvious. The O-line is terrible and the defense is terrible, okay? On the season, their season is now done. Now, these numbers will change a little bit because most teams still have one more game to play. But here is where USC finished on the final stat lines. They finished as an offensive line. They finished as the 91st ranked rushing attack. Now, I know Lincoln Riley. I get that there's only so much he can do if the O-line can't block. But 91st ranked rushing offense and 112th out of 133 teams in terms of sacks allowed. And Caleb Williams avoided a lot more sacks running for his life, 112th in yards allowed. So the O-line isn't good. The defense certainly isn't good. They finished the regular season giving up 35 points per game, 124th nationally out of 133 teams, and the 120th ranked total defense. And what strikes me about USC, so we know what the problems are. So that's the thing, right? We know what the problems are with USC, but I don't know what the solutions are because the solutions that most teams would go to, they're not really an option for USC because think about it. What is it if you have glaring holes in certain spots in the modern era of college football? What do you do? You go to the transfer portal, right? Well, just one problem. USC outside of Colorado has been more aggressive than any team in the transfer portal over the last two off seasons. And really, if you go two off seasons, they've been by far the most aggressive because Colorado and Deion Sanders just got there a year ago. Took about 30, 32, 35 guys two years ago. Uh, took another 15, 20 this past year. So if the answer is we need bodies, we need depth, we need size, they've tried the transfer portal and didn't work. Well, how about high school recruiting? I mean, Lincoln Riley said, I'm coming to USC because I have a better chance of building a national title contender in Southern California. 
all those elite high school players, USC, the brand, the song girls, all the Heisman Trophy winners. You know, USC is ranked 19th nationally right now, according to 24-7 sports in terms of recruiting rankings. And don't tell me, you know, you'd sit there and say, well, maybe they're just not very good high school players in California this year. I know. Brandon Baker, number one offensive tackle in America from modern day, used to be a USC stronghold. You couldn't get a kid out of modern day if you wanted him. He's going to Texas. Aiden Breland, number three defensive tackle, going to Oregon, had offers from Georgia and Miami. USC wasn't even in the final five. And so you look at USC, the portal hasn't worked. They're not recruiting the high school ranks. So what is the fix for Lincoln Riley? The bottom line is, listen, I think he, this guy is, it sounds crazy. Listen, let me say this. I, I saw like uh, Bill Bill Plaschke, columnist. You've seen him on Around the Horn. He works for the LA Times. He used the word hot seat. Lincoln Riley's not on the hot seat. The school owes him way too much money. Um, but I, I, I do think he has to look himself in the mirror. First of all, I don't think the NFL is an option for him. I don't know how an NFL team can hire him after the abomination that he just had this year. Because not only is the defense not good, but the offense is not good as well. Now, I do think he has to look himself in the mirror, and I think he's got to ask some tough questions of himself. First of all, he's got to fix recruiting, okay? And and we'll get into the style of playing on the field. There is no reason ever for USC to be ranked 18th, 19th in the country in recruiting. I've lived in LA for about 12 years now. I was here for the Lane Kiffin recruiting through NCA sanctions. Lane Kiffin signed top 10 classes with like 15 scholarships. Everybody else is signing 25, 30 guys. He's signing like 12 to 13, and he still had top 10 classes. Sark, whatever, however it ended, was signing elite players. Every player he wanted. Listen, how about Clay Helton? You can criticize Clay Helton for a lot. He had Bryce Young committed. He had Bryce Young committed, and it wasn't until it was clear that he was about to get fired that Bryce Young decommitted ends up going to Alabama. And so I bring it up because every head coach at USC has been able to recruit. There is no excuse for Lincoln Riley. And I get that it's a portal. It's an NIL world. It's a collective world. And I understand that USC right now, probably the collective isn't where it needs to be in terms of competing with SEC schools, uh, Big 12 schools, whatever. But at the same time, there is no excuse. And the thing that stands out to me, he's not recruiting Southern California. Top 15 prospects in California, USC has two commitments. As I said, number one offensive tackle in America going to Texas. Number three off defensive tackle going to Oregon. They go to modern day in Santa Ana, California. That used to be a USC hotbed. You could not get a kid out of there if you wanted to. It's where Matt Leinert went. It's where Matt Barkley went. Uh, It's where Bryce Young went, where he was going to go to USC. So the recruiting has to be better. But listen, I beat around the bush long enough. We got to get to some other stuff. It starts with Lincoln Riley. And don't tell me it's about the defensive coordinators about fixing the defense. I think it's about fixing the mentality of this program. Because the bottom line, listen, you go back about a month ago, right? After Penn State lost to, to Ohio State, remember the conversation we had? We said, I give Ryan Day so much credit. Because about three years ago, they lost to Oregon in the regular season. And Ryan Day basically looked himself in the mirror and he said, we can't keep going on like this. We can't keep putting teams on the field where we have to score 40 points a night to win every single game we play. And so it took time. It took into the offseason, but they hired Jim Knowles. Their defense was much improved last year. Now they have maybe the best defense in college football. And they're going into the Michigan game this weekend. We'll see if they win, but it doesn't change the fact that the bottom line is that for Ohio State, they are a defensive-driven team now. And I'm not saying if you're Lincoln Riley, you got to, you know, you got to be the 85 Bears next year, but it's about a mentality. It's about a mindset. You listen to what Oklahoma fans said when he left. They were right every single year that he was at Oklahoma, that they got further away from the Bob Stoops defensive mentality. They got softer. The defense got worse. They gave up more points. It's just the truth. It's just undeniable. There's talk about how he runs practices. You talk to anybody who covers college football, anybody who's around this sport, anybody who knows people in the industry, they will tell you USC, they do not practice the way that Georgia practices, the way that Michigan practices, the way that Alabama practices, the way that Ohio State now practices. I had a buddy of mine who knows college football. He said, they're a country club program. They're soft. And like sometimes the, the LA is soft. Like that's not always true. UCLA football is not soft. UCLA basketball under Mick Cronin is not soft, but USC football, oh, they are soft. And it starts with with Lincoln Riley. So I'm not going to go on and on. 
The defensive coordinator hire might be the most important hire of his life, and I think there's some good candidates. Zach Arnett, the former Mississippi State uh, head coach, is available. Jim Leonard, the former Wisconsin defensive coordinator who played in the NFL, is available. But it really comes down to not just the hire, but the mentality. You have to build toughness. You have to build uh, a program that does not wilt. And you have to build a program, even if it takes time, that doesn't need 40 points a game to win. Follow that Ohio State blueprint, but you got to be better, Lincoln Riley. And that's where I'm concerned. I am really concerned because you're going into year three. As weird as it sounds, I think you're in a worse place heading into year three than you were heading into year one, because at least year one, you had Caleb Williams. You had momentum. Next year, what do you have? An inexperienced quarterback, couple nice pieces on offense, and a completely rebuilt offensive line and defense. Lincoln Riley, it's time to get to work. All right, this is what we're going to do. Take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to hit the coaching carousel. How about that coaching carousel? We're going to get you an update on AM. Arkansas appears to be bringing back Sam Pittman. Uh, UCLA didn't make a move, just like I told you. We're going to discuss the coaching carousel. Quick break. Be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, final college football segment of the show. So good to be back. We will get to college hoops here in a minute. Feast week is here. Cannot wait. But before we get to college hoops, do want to kind of just put a bow on college football for this show and really dive into another interesting segment on the college football coaching carousel. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, the, the carousel, it feels like it's just getting started, but it really isn't. The bottom line is I think most, especially at the power fives, most schools want to go ahead. If you're going to make a move, they want to do it by now so that you can have a guy in place by the end of the regular season to re-recruit your roster, then hit the portal. Um, and so as crazy as it sounds, I think it, it's easy to think that we're just in the beginning stages. It's going to move fast over the next seven to 10 days. And we're obviously, as we have over the last couple of weeks, we're going to go ahead and keep you updated on everything. Want to take a look at a lot of different things. We'll talk about Arkansas in a minute. Sam Pittman's coming back. We'll talk about Syracuse, uh, UCLA. It looks like, you know, I may have been wrong on, on Arkansas, but I nailed the Chip Kelly situation, or at least it appears as though uh, Chip Kelly will be coming back. But before we get into all that, let's start with the big story of the week, and that's Texas A&M. And if you listen to this show every single episode, you know, um, you know, this is to me going to be probably the biggest job that opens. Now, it's possible that Jim Harbaugh goes to the NFL, maybe a Ryan Day, maybe a Lincoln Riley. But for the most part, this is probably the biggest job that's going to open up. And I think even in the last week, we've we've really gotten a feel for what is going on and how Texas A&M is approaching this. I'll be blunt. When the job opened last week, my first reaction was, you don't pay Jimbo Fisher $77 million to go away, plus millions more for your staff, plus millions more for the next head coach, if you don't know who the next head coach is. But as time has gone on, it has become increasingly clear, this is not a situation where Texas A&M is going in saying, there is only one candidate for us, let's go get that guy. And they are taking a very kind of holistic 30,000-foot view and kind of vetting a number of different guys. And so over the last week, we've gotten a lot of updates, a lot of interesting details, and, and, and let's just really dive into where we are now. First off, when we talked about this last week, do think for the most part, like the super, super, super big names, it appears as though they're, they're kind of staying where they are, right? We talked about Dan Lanning saying thanks, but no thanks. Talked about Dan Campbell, or we didn't even talk about Dan Campbell, but uh, he is a Texas A&M alum, now with the Detroit Lions. He was asked about it. I, he gave a great answer. He's like, I will do anything I can to help Texas A&M, except actually coach them. Very happy where I am. Obviously, a no on Dabo, no on Mike Norvell, Lane Kiffin, et cetera. But that next group of guys is starting to emerge. And I think it's 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 a very interesting group of guys that Texas A&M, it appears as though, is not only interested in, but could be interested in that job as well. Here are a couple updates since the last time we spoke. First off, I think the biggest piece of tangential news that we definitively have, we found out on Friday that Texas A&M has interviewed Jeff Trailer, the head coach at Texas San Antonio, UTSA. Now, I know what a lot of people would say, oh my goodness, Texas San Antonio, like that's the guy you're going to hire to compete with Nick Saban and, and Kirby Smart and Brian Kelly. And what I would say is, first of all, you know, you thought you hired that guy six years ago and it clearly didn't work. Um, but I did some reaction to this kind of news on the YouTube channel on Friday. 
But I'll be blunt, as time has gone on, I, I think I've kind of come around to the idea that if this was the guy, and we don't know if an offer was extended, we don't know certainly if he would accept it even if, if, if there was one. I've come to accept that if he was the guy, I think I'm actually more okay with it than I was when I first heard the news on Friday. Because the bottom line, for people who don't know much about Jeff Trailer, and again, I'm not insinuating that he is definitively the guy, just that if he was, I think it makes sense. First off, um, you know, deep roots in the state of Texas. For people who do not know, started as a Texas high school football coach, 14 years as a Texas high school football head coach, three state titles, five state title games, knows the area, knows the state. And I do think in this particular job, in this particular state, that's important. We can sit there and pick apart why Jimbo Fisher didn't work. There's a million different reasons. But what I do think one of the factors is that probably wasn't talked about enough. We focused on, oh, he's coached in the SEC. He was with Nick Saban at LSU. Yeah, but he wasn't. He had never been at Texas. He had never been in the Texas area. And I don't think he really knew that landscape and how things worked in recruiting. Like he did fine in recruiting, but I don't think he ever fully ingratiated himself uh, in that in that state and with the state high school football coaches. You read reports, ESPN did a good report about, you know, the Texas high school coaches convention. He was the only uh, uh, FBS head coach that did not speak there in the last year or so. So you just go through the list and, and, and you wonder if Jimbo Fisher was maybe not as good of a fit as we thought when he was hired. With Jeff Trailer, Texas high school football coach, knows everybody, but also has had a ton of success at UTSA. For people who don't know the resume there, this is year four. Uh, he will be going to a fourth straight bowl game. He is a guy that in his first three years uh, went to bowl games, 12 and two in 2021, 11 and three a year ago, eight and three right now, potentially playing for another conference championship. And he is really, uh, frankly, just he's a program builder, right? Um, and he really, I, I, I do think, again, he kind of understands the basics that maybe Jimbo Fisher doesn't detail, organization, et cetera. It's about 55 years old. So he's a little bit older, but again, knows the state, knows the community, knows the people, knows the power brokers that you need to know. And again, has built a winner at Texas San Antonio. Also worth noting for people who don't know before Texas San Antonio did spend some time in the college ranks as an assistant started with Charlie strong at Texas, uh, with, uh, with, uh, Chad Morris at, um, at SMU in Arkansas. So I just bring it up because he knows the landscape. He knows what it takes. He's coached at the power five level as an assistant. And again, if he ends up being the guy, I don't think I would hate it as much as I maybe thought I would have uh, when I first heard the name. Let's keep it going. A couple other names. You know, listen, the guy that I immediately thought when Jimbo Fisher got fired, and I still think there's something to it, uh, is Mike Elko, the Duke head coach. And for people who don't know Mike Elko's background, Mike Elko, before he was the Duke head coach, was a longtime defensive coordinator under Jimbo Fisher. Frankly, the defense was elite basically the entire time Mike Elko was there. Um, and Mike Elko bluntly has a lot of great relationships with guys still on the staff and players still on the roster. He left two off seasons ago, right before Texas A&M signed that historic 2022 recruiting class. And I remember talking to people down at Texas A&M when that happened, who were sitting there saying like, darn it, we lost Elko. Like, I hope we don't lose any of the guys that are in that recruiting class because he recruited a lot of the kids in that building still. And he frankly has built a lot of really good relationships with kids that are still on that roster. Also think it's kind of important. Like, like I think this is an important part, right? And we, we, we may have talked about this last week. I've done so many segments, I don't remember. But I think when, when, when you see a firing, you assume that the whole place is a disaster, tear it down and build it back from the top. Okay. Not every job is like that. Um, you know, Mississippi state, probably you're going to have to tear down and build from, from the top back up because, you know, multiple coaching staffs, obviously, whatever you get the point Syracuse, same, whatever. You don't have to do that at Texas A&M. And the thing about Elko is I think he could kind of retain the pieces that worked under Jimbo Fisher and obviously upgrade the ones that didn't. You know, you think about a guy like Elijah Robinson, the current interim head coach, another guy that recruited a lot of these guys that the players clearly love, the relationship guy. That's probably a guy you want to retain. And so to have a guy like Mike Elko could pay dividends in retaining some of the staff members that you want. Also think it's worth noting with Mike Elko. I know there's some talk about how much does he really want to go back to AM. I do think this year is probably a good reminder and a good wake-up call 
of just how tough the task is at Duke, right? And it's easy to say, I'm happy at Duke, blah, 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 this and that. I get it. At the same time, like it is kind of worth noting, Duke, like think about their season, right? Started by beating Clemson. You beat Clemson. It's incredible. They rushed the field. You keep winning. I think you started 4-0, 5-0, whatever. Get in the top 20, top 15, and then the injuries start piling up. And they pile up. And Riley Leonard's hurt. And then he comes back. And then he gets hurt again. And you just realize how much has to go right at Duke for you to even be competitive, let alone win at the highest level. And so when I look at Elko, I think that's the pitch. It's like, dude, you're doing great things at Duke. And if you want to stay at Duke, we're not going to keep you from doing that. But it's really hard to win here. Come here. You can build depth. You can build the infrastructure. You can sustain injuries. And you can compete for a national championship. One thing as we look at these candidates, I think it's important to remember, is that most places you're going to have to rebuild and retool. If you can just keep the guys in the building right now in the building, you can literally compete for a national championship next year. I think Mike Elko, out of all the candidates, is the guy that both can that has a track record, success, winning, et cetera, but also can retain the guys in that building and start building from uh, what is already in place for next year. A couple other names that have started to emerge. You know, Lance Leipold at Kansas is such an interesting one, and we've talked a lot about him over the last couple of weeks. Uh, he's at Kansas, but he's basically won every year, everywhere, excuse me. He's 59 years old, so he's a little bit older, but started at the D3 level. Shout out Wisconsin Whitewater. Just sounds like a cool place. Whitewater, Wisconsin. Can't lie and say I've ever been there, but it sounds like a cool spot, okay? Um, but he's won, he, he won multiple national championships there at the D3 level. Goes to Buffalo, wins there, and then he gets to Kansas and has essentially immediate success. And I know I keep bringing this up, but this is incredible. Remember, he got to Kansas after spring football in 2021. Les Miles was there. Les Miles gets fired. And what ends up happening? He gets fired in May. Lance Leipold arrives in May. Many of the best players enter the portal. And by year two, they're they're 5-0 and in the top 25, and they made a bowl game last year. This year, they obviously reached the top 20 last week. Now, they did lose to Kansas State on Saturday. It doesn't change the fact that this guy has done incredible work at Kansas. Couple things and a couple thoughts as far as as Lance Leipold is concerned. Now he did publicly about two weeks ago. Uh, he had been linked to the Michigan jo- Michigan State job. Excuse me. There was a report um, that he basically interviewed with Michigan State, and he came out and flatly said, "The only interview I've ever done is the one that I'm doing right now, right here about this conversation. Haven't done any interviews, and I want to retire at Kansas if possible." And what I think about that is a couple things. One. It's easy to say that when it's Michigan State, and that's no disrespect to Michigan State. But remember, we are entering a world where Oregon, USC, UCLA, and Washington are coming into the the, the Big Ten. The Michigan State job, which was already probably the fourth, fifth best job in that conference without those schools, now becomes the sixth, seventh, eighth best job in that league. So it's easy when it's Michigan State to say, I'm going to retire here and finish here, and I'm happy here, and my wife loves it, blah, blah, blah. It's another thing when you could go to Texas A&M, and again, that would be the pitch by me if I was Texas A&M. Listen, man, you've won everywhere, and you can keep at Kansas kind of the, the Mike Elko thing. You could stay at Kansas. You'll have success. You'll win a lot of game, but you know those two, three, four times a year, you're going to run into teams that just can recruit a caliber player that you can't at Kansas, and you're going to bash your head against the wall trying to beat those guys, or you can come here and coach those guys right now. You can come here and truly test yourself at the highest levels, truly test yourself against the Sabins and the Brian Kellys and the uh, Lane Kiffins and the, the Kirby Smarts. Obviously, Kirby Smart has it rolling like nobody else in the sport right now. So that's the pitch to him. And then it's just a question of whether he wants to take it. He's 59 years old. He's a little bit older, but it's kind of also the counter. This is your la- this might be your last shot at, at a big, big, big boy job. Let's have the conversation. Another guy that's popped up. The guy, ironically, that Lance Leipold lost to this weekend, Chris Kleiman, the head coach at Kansas State. Another guy, program builder, was at North Dakota State. Uh, Now, he didn't start it from scratch at North Dakota State, but won multiple national championships there. Goes to the FBS level, and he's got Kansas State in a great, great, great place. Ten ten wins last year, 10-4 and overall. Remember, it was Kansas State that won the Big 12. They beat TCU in the, the Big 12 title game. Now, TCU ended up playing in the playoff and for a national championship. But it was Kansas State 
that uh, won that conference. They played Alabama in the Sugar Bowl, and this year they're they're playing really well again. Eight and three overall. They played Texas down to the wire. Uh, you know they have a couple nice wins as well. They played Missouri, obviously down to the wire. And so with him, a couple things. One, it will be interesting. They're still in the Big Twelve title race, so in theory, it could take a little while longer to get him. Um, they're not in the playoff race, obviously, but you know he's going to want to coach his team in the conference championship game. But the other thing is he's a little bit younger than Leipold, 56 years old. And again, I think you can sell him. You're a program builder. You, you know, you, you've done it at the highest level. You've done it at close to the highest levels. Now come to the highest level and test yourself against the best. Don't know if it'll happen, but I, I guess I'm just trying to wrap by saying, I think these are the kinds of candidates that Texas A&M is going to end up getting. As I said, the Dan Lannings have said no. The Dan Campbells have said no. The Mike Norvells have said no. The Dabo Sweeney's have said no. But that next tier could be really good, and it could be the change of pace that you need. Not the big name, not the flashy name, not the super sexy name, but the name that's actually going to build your program. And I do think it's interesting. One last thing, we'll get to the rest of, of the, the coaching carousel. I do think it's important. Like, like I think if it isn't a super big name, I think there's going to be a reaction of, oh, I mean, that guy, I mean, who is he? He can't win, whatever. But I was thinking about this. Like, I was thinking about the fact that I myself, like everybody in the media, we all want to sit here and say that we know how stuff is going to go down. And we know what this is all going to look like and who are the best coaches and who's the best hires and all that stuff. But how many times are the hires that we think are the best hires actually end up being the best hires? And how often are they not? And how often are the guys that we never talk about the ones that actually end up having success. And so I was thinking about that with Texas A&M. Think about two off seasons ago, some of the hires. Lincoln Riley got hired at USC. Well, we just talked about where USC is today. Lincoln Riley got hired the same year that Dan Lanning got hired at Oregon and Kalen DeBoer got hired at Washington. Those two latter hires got one one thousandth the coverage of Lincoln Riley. And who would you want to be right now? Kalen DeBoer, Dan Lanning, or Lincoln Riley? So I just bring it up. You just never know. And if you're an AM fan, don't worry about how sexy the name is. Don't worry about winning the press conference. Just go ahead uh, and make sure that you get the right guy. Really quickly, a couple other coaching carousel news and notes. Um, one, Arkansas, a little bit of a surprising move. Sam Pittman was retained. But I will tell you a couple things. You know, one, listen, I said on Friday's show, I said I thought that Sam Pittman might be gone after that Missouri game. Arkansas beat Florida International on Saturday. That's not the reason Sam Pittman's coming back. Now, what I was told was there was a little bit of a power struggle in that athletic department. I think there were certain factions that were ready to move on from Sam Pittman. Uh, and I believe ultimately the higher powers at the university, the chancellor, the board of trustees were the ones that said, no, 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 he's going to get one more year. And on the one hand, I will say, I'm ha- like, like, I don't want to see a guy get fired. Like, and so... If you like Sam Pittman, I have no problem. I'm glad he's getting another year. What I would also say, though, I have switched my opinion on um, on the idea of giving a guy one more year. Now, I think there's always exceptions to the rule. Like when Scott Frost got another year because they kept losing one-score games. I was like, give him another year. He's an alum, whatever. But in general, in a situation like this at Arkansas, I sometimes think it's just better to pull the plug. Because at the end of the day, Arkansas is four and seven right now. Even if they beat Missouri on Friday, they are not getting bowl eligible. And now you don't have a bowl game to prepare for. So your offseason ends in five days. Your offseason ends before the beginning of December. And what ends up happening is you just get into a cycle of negativity where you're you're going to be coming off a four and eight season, one and seven in the SEC. And the next nine months are just going to be negative, 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 negative. Four and eight, four and eight, four and eight, four and eight, maybe five and seven if you beat Missouri. But if you lose to Missouri, you're four and eight. You got embarrassed in some some games that you shouldn't be getting embarrassed in. And ultimately, um, you know, there's nothing you can do to change that narrative. And so I've seen it a million times. Remember it happening with Will Muschamp at Florida a million years ago, Clay Helton at USC, where you know you got to pull off the Band-Aid and you just don't do it. And you have eight months of negativity. That's what's coming in Arkansas. So I would have made the move. I don't know if Hunter Juracek, the AD, really had final say in this one. Um, I think it's kind of interesting if you even read his statement. He basically said the players were happy when I announced Sam Pittman was coming back. 
not like we are so thrilled to have Sam Pittman back leading our team for the 2024 season. Interesting piece of news. Sam Pittman coming back a little bit surprising. A couple other news and notes, you know, as I record here, stuff's always subject to change. But the one thing I did get right on Friday show, I said I, I was told that the Chip Kelly uh, story was largely fabric, not fabricated. I think the reporters believed what they were reporting. But ultimately, I said, I don't believe Chip Kelly is going to get fired after the USC game. Well, fast forward. Uh, Chip Kelly has not been fired. And I don't think even if they lose to Cal that he will. Um, I don't think UCLA really wants to make the transition to the Big Ten next year with a new head coach when so much is in place. Defense is in a great spot. The run game is in a great spot. The quarterback, Garbers, when he's healthy, is not bad. So you beat Cal to go to 8-4. and four. They're 0% chance. I still think even if you lose, I, I, I just don't see it happening. But UCLA, Chip Kelly is still there. And then finally, you know, a very interesting one came out on, I guess it was Sunday morning. Dino Babers fired at Syracuse as Syracuse opens for the first time in about eight or nine years. And what I would say, I've been told by some very high ranking people, Syracuse, I believe, probably in the power five, has, I would argue, one of the bottom 10 NIL setups. First of all, Dino Babers kind of talked about it publicly. Like there was a couple times where like they played Florida State and he's like, hey, three years ago, we were a field goal away from beating them. And look what's happened since. They have fully bought into NIL and the transfer portal. Like he kind of publicly said it, but I have also been heard it's really bad. And I don't know what kind of candidate in 2023 you can get if your NIL setup is not good. It is a money game. It is a collective game. We can argue about it. We can hate it. But the bottom line is that's where we are right now. Syracuse, upstate New York, hard place to recruit to. NIL is not good. I'll give you a little inside baseball, but they have one like mega, mega, mega booster that used to give millions and millions and millions of dollars to the school. Him and the AD don't get along. And he basically said last year that I'm not giving another dollar to this school and to this athletic department. And he was a guy that was ready to write checks. He was a guy that was ready to elevate that entire program. And instead, he's basically like, I'm not giving any more money. So Syracuse is an interesting spot. I like, like, like one of our writers, let me put it this way. Jake Vegas, who writes for us at Aaron Torres online, like he said to me, he's like, you want a Syracuse coaching candidates list? I said, I don't even know who the candidates are. I don't know who you can get in this era if your NIL setup is not good. So Syracuse is open and it is going to be fascinating to see what unfolds. Uh, and obviously, we'll keep you updated on the rest of the coaching carousel. Um, you know, Baylor could open, Houston could open, but for the most part, I think Arkansas and UCLA were the big ones we were waiting on. Both end up, or at least Arkansas publicly announced it. Uh, Chip Kelly at his press conference basically said, "I was told it was nonsense." So, I think the coaching carousel, outside of outside of the the hires that get made, which lead to other openings, I think the big firings are largely kind of done. All right, this is what we're going to do. Good, good segment, by the way, on the coaching carousel. I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. When we come back, we will switch gears and we will talk a little college hoops. Feast Week is here. We have an incredible Maui invitation. We have an incredible battle for Atlantis. We're going to preview some of the big tournaments, what you need to know going into this week. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to go ahead and wrap with a little bit of college hoops. By the way, quick shout out to your boy Torres. Okay. We had some major internet issues at the Torres compound here on, on, on a, a Sunday into Monday, but today's show was so good. There was no way I could leave you hanging without a show. So I do want to wrap with college hoops. And let me just say this. This is one of the great weeks on the college hoops calendar as feast week is here Yes, it's the week with all these tournaments across the country. The Maui Invitational, Battle for Atlantis. Obviously, that's not in the country, but you get the point. Uh, we got tournaments going on already. Some finished, actually, last week. Uh, Baja Mar Invitational, which is down in the Bahamas. Baja Mar is a beautiful casino and resort, by the way. Uh, let's see. Miami beat Kansas State in that one. St. John's finishes in third place in Charleston. Houston played for the championship. There was an event in Vegas with San Diego State, Washington, Xavier. So a lot has already happened. But what I want to do is kind of quickly go through the big events that are coming this week, what you need to know, just give you a quick preview. 
Let's dive in. First of all, let me start by saying this. We actually have the championship game tonight, Monday, of the Empire Classic four-team event, UConn, Indiana, Texas, and uh, Louisville, okay? So Texas and Louisville, UConn, Indiana played on Sunday. And let me just say this. Two really fun games. UConn absolutely destroyed Indiana. Listen, I'll say this for UConn. I'm not trying to be arrogant UConn fan. But this team is locked and loaded once again. Okay, they won by 20 points. Donovan Klingon and Alex Karabin, they're two, I don't want to say they're two best returnees, but two of their three marquee returnees, they didn't even play well. And what stood out to me about this game, UConn, and this is incredible, is they just play so hard. And I give Dan Hurley so much credit. If there is any level of complacency or look ahead from this team after winning the championship last year, It was not on display on Sunday because you watch the game and it was pretty close, about a six, eight point lead. And then UConn, they just play so hard. They come at you in waves and they were just getting to every loose ball. They were beating everybody up on the glass. They were plus 22 on the glass. And Indiana's got a nice team with Kalel Ware, Mackenzie Mbako, Malik Renault, and they just beat them up. So UConn's playing Texas in the championship game. Texas needs a buzzer beater to survive against Louisville again. Not trying to be arrogant UConn fan. I do think UConn takes care of business in this one. Uh, Texas, I have not been a fan of in the preseason. They have two small guards, Max Aismas and Tyrese Hunter. Their bigs aren't particularly skilled. I like UConn to win this game. By the way, if you watch the games on Sunday, really quickly, side story. Jay Jay Williams was off his rocker, okay? He was complaining about NIL, talking about why is Donovan Klingon in L.A. doing TV commercials. That that was off of itself. Then he starts complaining about the portal, and this kind of went viral. Did you see this story where he kind of said something in passing about, well, you know, if things don't go well for D.J. Wagner, the star freshman at at Kentucky, his grandfather coaches at Louisville. I mean, is he just going to jump in the portal and transfer to Louisville? And Carl Ravitch was like, what are you talking about, dude? So anyway, I don't mean to change the subject, but Jay Williams was off his rocker. Uh, I don't know why he's even calling college basketball. If you listen to the two broadcasts, I'm not here to criticize anybody. It did not seem like he enjoys college basketball at all. He was talking about how much he literally talked about during the Indiana UConn game, how much he hates both programs. He literally said, this was a direct quote. He said, when I see the red and white stripes, it makes me nauseous sometimes. Not exactly what I want to hear from my unbiased uh, reporter on the sidelines there. But Jay Williams, <laughs> he will be on the call again. UConn plays Texas tonight. I do expect UConn to win. Let's go to the big event on Monday, though. And I'd be remiss. We got to talk about the battle for Atlantis, okay? Or, or no, no, excuse me. We got to go Maui Invitational first. This might be the best Maui Invitational field ever. And that sounds crazy, but think about it like this. So the four matchups are as follows. Syracuse-Tennessee is the early game. Uh, then you have Gonzaga-Purdue. Then you have uh, K- uh, Kansas and Chaminade. Then you have Marquette and UCLA. So just think about it like this. You have four top 10 teams. You have the preseason pick to win the SEC in Tennessee. The preseason pick to win the Big Ten in Purdue. The preseason pick to win the Big 12 in Kansas. The preseason pick to win the Big East in Marquette. In terms of the matchups, listen. Tennessee will be playing Syracuse. Remember, Syracuse, first year, no Jim Beheim. Adrian Autry is the coach. Uh, they barely beat Colgate the other day. I think Tennessee rolls in that one. Purdue Gonzaga will be interesting. I'm not sold on Gonzaga's talent this year. They have Ryan Nemhard, the transfer from Creighton, Graham E.K., the transfer from Wyoming. They don't have much depth or much skill besides that. I think Purdue survives that one. Do think Kansas goes on and beats uh, Chaminade? Not a surprise there. And I want you to keep an eye on Marquette. They already played at Illinois, which I think is a really good team. Remember, Illinois in the preseason played Kansas in a charity exhibition. Ironically, it was to raise funds for Maui. This 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 event is not in Maui this year, unfortunately, because of the wildfires in Maui. I bring it up. Kansas played at Illinois in a preseason exhibition. Full crowd, Kansas lost. Marquette, three weeks later, played a regular season game and won. Marquette, I think, is way better than people realize. So I like uh, Tennessee versus Purdue in the second round and then Kansas versus Marquette. I will take Tennessee to beat Purdue because I think Tennessee is more athletic. I think Tennessee is going to give Purdue fits just like every athletic team always does. And I like Marquette in the other semifinal to upset Kansas. I think Marquette pulls off the win against Kansas. Everybody's clamoring for Kansas versus Purdue. I think we get that in the semifinal or we get that in the third place game. And I think we get Marquette versus Tennessee in the title game. 
I think Tennessee's athleticism is a bit too much. Give me Tennessee to win the Maui Invitation. Let's keep it going. Our next big event. By the way, there is another event Monday uh, on uh, FS1. It is called the, uh, uh, well, we hit on the Empire Classic, the Fort Myers tip-off. Not going to spend much time on this. It's Virginia, Wisconsin, SMU, and West Virginia. Um, Virginia is probably going to win this. Wisconsin already has two losses on the season, lost to Tennessee at home, lost to Providence on the road. Give me Virginia to win that event. And now we got to get to the Maui Invitation, or the Battle for Atlantis. I'm tripping these two up. But the Battle for Atlantis, another just loaded field, okay? Top half of the bracket is North Carolina versus Northern Iowa. A second part of the bracket is Villanova versus Texas Tech. And then the bottom half, really intriguing bottom half of the bracket, Michigan versus Memphis and Arkansas versus Stanford. Top half of the bracket, I think North Carolina takes care of business, no problem. Think they end up beating North Northern Illinois. By the way, this game, this event is Wednesday to Friday. Hope I made that clear. Just trying to throw information at you. Just try to get this segment done before my internet goes out again. But I bring it up. Let's slow down, Torres. Deep breath. Okay. So North Carolina versus Northern Iowa. I think North Carolina wins. Villanova versus Texas Tech. I don't know if it will be deemed an upset. I like Texas Tech to win. I have told you I do not believe in Villanova. I do not believe in Kyle Neptune. I think. Everything that Jay Wright built is slowly slipping through the hourglass, slowly sand slipping through the fingertips. Uh, they went heavy in the portal, heavy with NIL. They got a bunch of dudes that aren't really, I don't want to say they're not Nova guys, but they're guys that transferred it in the offseason. They're just hooping. Texas Tech, another team that is kind of a brand new. Grant McCasland is the head coach there. He came from North Texas. I actually really like him, and I like that team. They have size. They have athleticism. They're tough. Give me Texas Tech to beat Villanova. Bottom half of the bracket. This is going to be the best game on Wednesday in this event. Michigan versus Memphis. Now, I know Michigan. They ended up losing on Friday to Long Beach State. Okay, so how about that for a week for Michigan? They beat St. John's at the Garden and then follow it up by losing to Long Beach State. But what I will say, they have some very interesting pieces on that team. Uh, they have uh, Namari Burnett transfer from from uh, from Alabama. They have Olivier Kongwa transfer from Tennessee. Terrace Reed is a returnee. Doug McDaniel is a returnee. They are playing a Memphis team. Remember, we talked about Memphis in the offseason. Probably the oldest team, not only in college basketball. I would venture to guess they're one of the oldest teams in college basketball history. Javon Quinterly, sixth year senior. Jordan Brown, 60-year senior. You know how old those guys are? Both those guys, and I'm not kidding. This is I'm not making this up. They played in the same McDonald's All-American game as Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett. Zion Williamson is on his second NBA contract right now. Uh, and and J- Javon Quinterly and Jordan Brown are both still playing college basketball at Memphis. One thing I will say about Memphis, they are tough. They are fearless. Caleb Mills and David Jones, two other older players, fifth, six-year guys, I think they take care of business against Michigan. I think they might be two of the more intriguing teams in that tournament. Bottom, bottom half of the bracket, Arkansas, Stanford. Arkansas lost over the weekend to UNC Greensboro. They were not locked in defensively. And I'll tell you this. One thing about Eric Musselman, you're not going to defend for him. You're not going to play for very long. I think we get a better effort. I think they beat Stanford. Uh, Back to the second round of that, that event, North Carolina versus Texas Tech. You know, I think Texas Tech could pull off the upset, but I'll go with North Carolina. Uh, I picked them in the, to go to the final four in the preseason. Can't back down now. Memphis versus Arkansas. Very intriguing matchup because that is a regional rivalry. I think everybody knows, but Memphis is, of course, on the, the what is it, the southwest border. Yeah, It's easy to get from Memphis to Arkansas. Easy to get to Memphis to, Ole, to, to Mississippi, too. But I bring it up because that is an old school rivalry. Penny Hardaway has said that he wants to reignite that rivalry. Um I guess I'll take Memphis. I don't feel great about that. Give me North Carolina, Memphis in the championship game. I'll take Memphis to win. No, I'll take North Carolina to win. North Carolina over Memphis. I don't feel great about that. I think any of those final four could make the championship game and potentially win the championship. North Carolina, Texas Tech, uh, Arkansas, and uh, Memphis. I'll take North Carolina over Memphis there. And then I'll be honest, outside of those two marquee events, there isn't a ton of other big events for Feast Week. Um, there's the uh, Wooden Legacy later in the week. That's a Thursday-Friday matchups. That's NC State uh, against Vanderbilt, Arizona State versus BYU. Not exactly the sexiest matchups there. 
So that'll be Thursday, Friday, an interesting game on Thanksgiving Day. So remember, we get the early Fox Thanksgiving game. I believe it's uh, Packers-Lions this year. Immediately following it, Michigan State versus Arizona in Palm Springs. Arizona is bluntly right up there as the best team that I've seen in college basketball this year. I think Arizona wins that game. Uh, And then an interesting late-week matchup, late-week event. It's called the Emerald Coast Classic. It's in Destin, Florida, and it features the Alabama Crimson Tide. Also there, Ohio State. Also there, Oregon. So by the way, that'd be a great Final Four for college football. But for college basketball, Alabama has been so good, so interesting, so intriguing early in the season. Go ahead, give me Alabama to win. So your official AT picks for these big uh, Feast Week events, go ahead and give me in the battle in Maui. I like Tennessee over Marquette in the championship game. And I will take North Carolina over Memphis and Atlantis, but I don't feel good about either of those. Uh, But it should be a fun week overall. It should be a fun week, and we will have plenty of reaction. Speaking of which, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Nice, long Monday show. Get you in the mood for this week. Listen, I'll be blunt. As we get out of here, I'm not totally sure on the taping schedule for the rest of the week. We will definitely do at least a Wednesday show. Friday might be a little hit or miss. We'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can get you a show. But that's why, if you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Got a couple new five-star reviews. Thank you for your support. Appreciate you there. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. If you're not already, click that subscribe button on YouTube. Uh, Also, make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I will be back on Wednesday. And boy, oh boy, a lot to preview on Wednesday. So thank you for your support. See you then. It's time for me to go. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You F-Ed. Unblock me, bro. I will be back on Wednesday. New Aaron Torres Podcast.